Hey everyone, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. See you kids, good to hang out with you. Thanks for the fist bumps as you walked in. Awesome, fun, fun. Uh, if you weren't here uh, last week, um, Aaron did this awesome teaching through 1 Samuel 7. He talked about how the people of Israel are looking for a king, and they're like, oh, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel says, guys, this is not going to go well for you. Essentially, you are not trusting in God as your king, and you're looking for another king. And that's sort of the stage... Um, we got runners back and forth. Yeah. Well, where are our parents? There they are. Um, that sets the stage for where we're at today, which is 1 Samuel 9. Isn't it amazing? It always amazes me how loud kids' footfalls are when they run. It's like an elephant. It's like I don't think I could run with my feet hitting the ground that hard if I tried. Okay, back to the story. So, uh, we pick up uh, after this idea of Israel wanting a king instead of God as their king, and uh, it picks up in chapter 9. This is how it starts. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Borakas, son of Ephias, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man... There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. All right, a few things to note here. One, Saul's dad is a man of wealth. This could refer to money or it could refer to like being a powerful warrior. So you have this sense of this is kind of a bigwig in the community. He's clearly a person of influence. Also, you have this detail. It's connected to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we often think of Benjamin and we think of, okay, New Testament stuff, like, oh, maybe a king is going to come out of Benjamin, these kind of things. Actually, at this point, the echo is back. So, in the book of Judges, if you're not sort of reading the whole arc, you might miss this. So, Benjamin was central, actually, to a recent civil war in Judges 19 through 21. So, there's this a uh, guy who comes through and he has a concubine and this concubine is horribly mistreated, which leads to this civil war. Uh, and it happens in a town called Gibeah, which is, happens to be in Benjamin and Saul's hometown. So we're alerted right to the fact, right at the beginning, that Benjamin is kind of stigmatized at this time. It's sort of like being like maybe a Nazi post-World War II in Europe or a German post-World War II. It's like, people look at you and they think, oh, you're the cause of the Civil War, your people. So, highlight number two. Third, Saul is presented as this, like, ideal guy. Tall stature, extra good looks, right? And you wonder, why does the author emphasize this? And we'll, we'll get to it in a bit. But you have this sense, like, if there was a Hollywood film... Like, Saul is cast as Thor, right? Like, the dude is taller than everyone. The text says that he is Tov. So we'll get at this a little bit. But like all people, right, living in families, things happen to even very handsome tall people. In this story, the donkeys are lost. 
Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, or said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you, arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Now, a few things to note here. One, father and son relationship, right? The father asks him to do something, and he's like, sure, I'll do it. And now, we might just think, no big deal. But if you think in 1 Samuel, you already have two sets of sons, right? You have Eli's sons and Samuel's sons, both of whom are like not making good decisions, right? That's already been highlighted. So now you have this contrast between Saul, who seems to obey his father, do what he says, and you have these other sets of sons that clearly are going in a different direction. Also, you might think, wow, these Kish people, man, they're bad donkey owners. Like, who loses their donkeys? <laughs> I know you thought that, you know. Um, but see, the thing is, uh, Gilbea is actually in these limestone hills, so you can't build hedges, so you have to build these stone walls. And these stone walls are notorious for sort of falling over and donkeys finding their way out. So you have these lost donkeys. Uh, I have actually a map. Um, See that little red area? That's sort of the route they would have gone in, sort of this oblong, circular route through Benjamin. They would have been in the bottom and sort of gone up and come back down. Um, Now, they've nearly done a full circle, and they decide, we're going to take a break, decide what to do next. Saul's a little worried that his dad is maybe getting anxious. Uh, You know, they've been gone for a, a bit. You know, another sign that he's actually a good son But he has this servant with him, and this servant has this idea. He's like, you know, there's a prophet, a man of God, a seer who's in the town nearby. Let's just go ask him if he knows where the donkeys are. You know, like if you lost your keys, you'd go to the prophet in the town next door and be like, hey, prophet, where are my keys, right? So they do that, right? But Saul's like, I don't know. We don't have money. What are we going to give him to help us find our donkeys? And it just so happens that this servant has a quarter of a shekel, about five bucks. And Saul's like, okay, let's do it. So they walk up to this town, verse 11. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer there? And they answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice on the high place. Now, I just want to orient you a tiny bit, just the ancient city design. Cities are generally built on a hill, right? This is for defensive purposes and other reasons, but wells are usually at the bottom. So Saul and his servant are coming up. Some younger women are coming down to gather uh, water at the well. Now, I just want you to shout out, can you think back into Genesis other times when wells have featured in a story? You can just say it, no hand raising. Joseph, okay. Who else? Jacob, yeah. So we have, we have a couple. If you go back, right, you have a couple. So you have Isaac and Rebekah. What does Isaac do at the well? He finds a wife. You have Jacob and Rachel. What does he do? He finds a wife. You have Moses and you have Zipporah. What does he do? Finds a wife. 
So in the ancient imagination, as Saul is approaching the well, this is a type scene. Right? This is a literary convention. In the ancient world, every reader is thinking, what's Saul going to do? He's going to find a wife. Instead, he gets directions. Same thing. Let me know when you want to schedule marriage counseling. (laughs) And this is one of the first points in the story. This is one of the literary clues telling us that likely Saul's kingship is not going to match expectations. Just as he doesn't find a wife, Israel probably isn't going to find the king they're looking for. And they go up to the city, right? They follow directions. And who do they run into? Samuel. Verse 16. It's actually, you know, watching a movie and there's like a narrative happening and then instantly there's a flashback. That's what happens right here. Narrative's developing. Verse 16, flashback. The day before. God says to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Now, what this does is a few things. One, it tells us that these coincidences are not actually coincidental. The donkeys are not a coincidence. The servant coming along with this idea to go see the seer is not a coincidence. That quarter shekel in his pocket is not a coincidence. The women coming down with correct directions, shout out to the back row, is uh, not a coincidence. Something else is going on here. Samuel also says that this guy who Samuel, or God says to Samuel, the guy you're going to meet, you should anoint him prince over Israel. This is important. Prince is Nagid in Hebrew. King is Melech. He is not being anointed king over Israel, but prince. Again, this is another foreshadowing that likely this guy who is anointed is going to be a little more like more than a judge, but not quite a king. Now, the first time I read this, I was like, so he goes up the hill, right? He literally runs right into Samuel. And I think to myself, because literally, he runs into him, and then he says, hey, do you know where the seer is? To Samuel. That would be like you running into, like, Tom Brady or Brad Pitt and being like, hey, I heard Brad Pitt's in around town. Do you know where he is? Like, who does that? And it made me think, like, well, ancient culture is very different. It's not a visual culture, right? We all have an image of famous people because we've seen it on our TV or our phone or in a magazine. In the ancient world, like, Samuel is literally the most famous person in Israel, bar none. But most Israelites probably ever hadn't, hadn't ever seen him up close. So he runs in to this guy. And Samuel says, oh, I'm the seer. He invites him over to dinner. He tells him about the donkeys. And at this time, Saul's like, something is going on here. Right? I didn't tell him about the donkeys. How does this guy know about the donkeys? And why is he inviting me over to dinner? 
This is weird. So he says in verse 21, uh, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Remember, we caused the civil war. Remember, people don't like us. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me this way? Hey, man, I'm just here about donkeys. What's going on? But Samuel's not going to be persuaded or dissuaded, right? He, Saul goes up to eat with Samuel. He joins the feast with a prophet instead of a party and a feast with a bride, right? Type scene. Samuel set aside the priestly portion, the leg, for Saul, and he gives it to him, right? And this would have been the normal time to anoint him Melech, king, but he doesn't. He actually anoints him the next morning when they're alone. The text says that Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be Nagid, prince over this people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Again, prince, not king. Saul's also anointed, this is just sort of a historical textual thing, with a flask of oil, not a horn. Now, a horn in the Old Testament symbolically refers to power and authority, right? David is anointed with a horn of oil. Solomon is anointed with a horn of oil. Not Saul. He just gets a little flask, right? The clues are starting to mount up in this sort of literary style that Saul might not be the king that the people of Israel are looking for. And then Saul, or Samuel gives Saul three different signs that are kind of illustrating his trustworthiness as a prophet, all of which come true. The most important of which is that on his way home till Gilbeah, Saul will join a group of prophets and the spirit will fall on him. And this will happen right around his hometown, and people will be like, hey, is, is Saul a prophet now? What's going on? And likely these rumors reach back to his family, and when Saul arrives home, he's asked by his uncle about his time away with Samuel, and Saul just says, oh, yeah, yeah, Samuel told us where the donkeys were. Verse 16, he says, and about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell them anything. What's going on for him? Is he unsure? Hesitant? He went to find donkeys, and he's anointed prince over Israel. But he seems kind of unsure. Samuel calls a national assembly sometime later. We don't know how long it's been. Samuel asks the people to take lots as a way to highlight uh, that Saul is going to be the new prince or king. But when the lot falls on Saul, he can't be found. People are like, where is he? You know, his head's, his shoulders taller than everyone. They could see him. And he's hidden himself, verse 22, among the baggage. Now, usually casting lots is a way to figure out if someone's guilty. So maybe that's going on. He's like, oh no, hide, you know, it's going to fall on me. Or maybe it's just another clue hinting at Saul's reluctance to obey God's calling, right? I, I went to find donkeys, not a kingdom. Right? Like Adam and Eve who hide from the calling voice of God, so here Saul hides. Or it's possible 
that there's actually more going on here. I want to try and unpack something that I think is worth highlighting in this text, but it might not be um, super clear. So I'm going to try and do this little chart. You guys might not be able to see this great. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll try and turn it your way a little bit. All right, so we're going to riff back to Genesis 3 for a second. In Genesis 3, um, God forms a garden, right? Or Genesis 2, he does. And then he has this tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, of good and evil, right? Good and bad. And uh, Eve, there's a serpent. I'm not going to get into all the details, but she sees what is good at the tree, takes it, gives it to Adam, and then they hide, okay? Genesis 3 has all of these marks. Seeing, good, taking, giving, hiding. Following me so far? All those words are present in Genesis 3. Now, if you keep going through the text, I've only highlighted a couple here. The story of Abraham. So you have Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Hagar sees that Hagar is probably good for them to get offspring because they haven't had any luck. So she takes Hagar and gives her to Abraham. It's another fall narrative in the text. Right? Right as God has promised, we're going to give you, we're going to make you, right? Even though you can't have children, be able to have children, they choose their own path. They see what is right in their own eyes and they try and forge their own way forward. Right as Israel is about to enter the promised land, this guy named Achan, they're in Uh, They're told not to take anything out of the pillage as they're going into the promised land. He sees something that he thinks is good. He takes it, and then he hides it. Right as Israel is on this momentous transition into Canaan, Achan sees good, takes, and hides As we enter chapter 9, Saul is described as Tov. He's handsome. That guy, he's Tov. Samuel takes Saul. 9.22, Samuel gives Saul a place at the table. 10.24, he tells the people of Israel to See the king set before them. Where does Saul go? He hides in the baggage. What you can see built into the literary narrative is they're trying to see, illustrate, Saul is the forbidden fruit that Israel has taken. They wanted a king just like their neighbors. So what do they do? They take Saul, right? He's good. He's handsome. He's tove. They take him, right? They see him, that he's good. They take him, and then he hides. You have this idea of Saul as like the forbidden fruit in this narrative. 
people of Israel are trying to find their own way, asking for a king rather than trusting in God. So Saul, he's taken from the baggage, he's seen by the people, the people saying, you know, long live the king. And you know, it's interesting, as the story picks up in chapter 11, Saul is back in his hometown, in the fields, with the oxen. While all this has happened, Saul is still farming, still likely finding lost donkeys. But then something happens. There's this guy named Nahash, the Amorite, whose name means snake or serpent, just saying. (laughs) And this guy's trying to besiege Jabesh Gilead, and he threatens to gorge out the right eye of all of the people in Jabesh Gilead in order to disgrace them. And the elders of Jabesh Gilead, they send out messengers to all of the territory of Israel asking for help. What's really interesting, though, is if you go back into Judges, after Benjamin is decimated by this civil war, the tribes of Israel are trying to, like, repopulate Benjamin because they've just been wiped out. Jabesh Gilead is the only area that does not send people back to help Benjamin in Gebeah. Now, while there's lots we could say about this story, my point is this. In Judges 21, Jabesh Gilead is the one area that does not go to help, and yet now they're calling for help. And where does word reach? Benjamin, Gebeah the people that were in most need before, after the Civil War. And the people get word and they're weeping. Saul is finishing his farming and he hears the news and this is what he says. What is wrong with the people? That, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. All right, so Saul, the farmer, comes out. Rather than weeps, he gets super angry. This seems to be connected to the spirit coming. Uh, Spirit rushes on him, his anger is kindled. And what seems clear in this moment is the way the Spirit is coming upon Saul mirrors the way the Spirit came upon the judges, right? For a limited amount of time, for a specific purpose. And this is the second time in the Bible that Gebeah is the source of severed pieces of flesh being delivered to all of Israel. Right? This is part of what leads to the civil war, right? This concubine is mistreated, then parts of her body are actually sent to all of Israel in order to mount a basic war against Benjamin. And now inverted in this literary sort of flow, he now takes pieces of oxen and sends them to all of Israel in order to help Jabesh Gilead. It's interesting, though, now Jabesh Gilead is the center of sort of 
relieving or helping this oppressed tribe rather than the perpetrators of the injustice. You guys following me? There's a lot of like echoes back in this. You're like, I am so lost. Okay. The text says that the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord fell upon Israel, uh, 11 verse 7. There's this sense in Israel that Saul and Samuel and God are up to something. All of Israel comes together, united under the fear of the Lord, and they win this battle. And as you get to the end of chapter 11, you have this sense of, what's going to happen now? Who is Saul going to be? Is he going to do what is right in his own eyes, like in the time of Judges, or is he going to live in awe and reverence of God? We don't know as chapter 11 finishes, but we see all these clues throughout the text that likely Israel's expectations are not going to be met. Now, the question is, right, we've gone through a lot of text, three chapters. It's a lot. I get it. Um, But the question is then, how does this relate to us? Right, as we're trying to figure out, that's a cool story from a few thousand years ago. What am I supposed to do with that? There's two things I want to highlight. Uh, The first has to do with just kind of this idea of coincidence. Right, like in daily life, sometimes we think, oh, is that coincidental? Is that God's sovereignty? Right, what's what's going on? Saul's this good-looking, tall guy who loses some donkeys. And as a good kid, he helps his dad to go find them. Right, but these lost donkeys change his life. Right? It happens that a servant, just so happens a servant is with him. Just so happens this servant has an idea of, let's go visit the seer. It just so happens he has a quarter shekel in his pocket. It just so happens they get directions from women at the well. It just so happens that he runs right into Samuel. It just so happens that Samuel happened to talk to God 24 hours earlier and said, hey, this is all going to happen. Maybe. Evans, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, writes, Coincidence can often be a glimpse of God's sovereign providence. Or as our worship team was meeting before service, PJ, and I quote, says, There are no coincidences. There are only divine appointments. And, you know, we can misconstrue coincidences all the time, right? We can make things that are true or think are God's sort of plan that aren't. But the story seems to suggest sometimes there's more going on than mere coincidence. I was trying to think of a few stories from my life. Uh, One was I was on a football recruiting trip. Uh, I wasn't very into God or church or Bible or any of this stuff that we talk about. And I was on a football recruiting trip uh, in high school. Um, I was really into weightlifting. I weighed like 35 pounds more than I do now. Um, And I was introduced to the guy I was going to stay with. Uh, his name's Adam Hunter, 6'4", and he is ripped. He's everything I wanted to be. And the only reason that when Adam Hunter invited me to go to a Bible study, the only reason I went is because Adam Hunter was jacked. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I can be as ripped as this guy, sign me up. I don't care what it takes. Coincidence or providence? A few years later, I was coming back from the Peace Corps, and the truth is, I didn't really still like Christians all that much. Um, 
I wasn't a huge fan, and I really wanted to work at this secular agency in San Francisco who was serving homeless youth. I applied every possible way a human being can apply at an agency. It was like every application, phone call, door knock, got lost into a black hole of applications. And like, at some point I was like, I don't even know what to do. And then this like door opens to work at this Christian group home. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work with a bunch of Christians. But like black hole versus open door. And they're like, yeah, we're ready. You know, when do you want to work for us? So I went there. Right, and it ended up being the place where I learned, actually, I really love equipping Christians to do God's work in the world. Right, this really key moment in my story. Coincidence? Or coming to do this church plant. I was coming down, this was, you know, about five years ago, and we were going to do like a demonstration morning so the people that were here, you know, the 40, 50 folks that were here could see a sense of like what a Sunday morning would feel like. And I can't play music like, me up here is like a CD, you know, and we're trying to worship to it. So I had a buddy from San Jose. I was like, come down, lead worship. All set up, all arranged, perfect. He's mountain biking, Santa Cruz Mountains. A bee flies in his mouth. Ends up with a concussion, flies off his handlebars, ends up in a concussion, calls me on the Thursday before and says, dude, I can't make it. I have a slight panic attack. I get a call 45 minutes later for someone I've never talked to in my life saying, hey, we heard you might need a worship leader. Yes, are you free Sunday? Sure. John and Amy Eldridge ended up leading worship here for two years. Just this morning, last example, Cliff, our drummer, right? Awesome drummer. He's about to have shoulder surgery next week. And we're like, Who's going to play drums? Like, Rachel can do it, but then we're losing an awesome acoustic guitarist. Like, everyone's a little panicked, especially Rachel. And <laughs> on Sunday, someone visited for the first time, and they're like, hey, you know, I play drums. I was like, oh, let me introduce you to someone. They did an audition Saturday. He's like, like, is an awesome drummer. And it's like, thank you, God. Coincidence or Providence. I just wondered uh, if it might be helpful this week to look back on your story, to those key moments that you've maybe seen as coincidence and say, all right, God, what might you be doing in my life? Were you sort of arranging things and why? Right? Often there's a connection between when God arranges things and who he's forming us to be as people that is connected to our purpose in the world. And I guess I would just ask you, like, Saul goes back to farming, he hides in the luggage, like, what are you hiding from? How has God arranged your life so that you could make a contribution right now? I would invite you, marinate in those stories of coincidence and just ask God, God, what were you doing that for? What were you trying to do in me and through me in that season what were you equipping me for now so that I could be faithful in your people and in your kingdom? Marinate in your story. Pay attention to those coincidences. Coincidence. I think that's one sort of way we can look at this story. The second one is both directly referenced and I think indirectly referenced. It's the fear of the Lord. 
So the text says in 11.7 that the dread of the Lord moved the people to respond, right? And the fear of the Lord is like the reverence or awe of God, right? Through Saul, the people of Israel experienced this kind of like good reverence, awe, fear, which actually unifies them and brings them into obedience, The fear of the Lord leads Israel to rescue their oppressed neighbors, right? That are be assaulted by the snake or the serpent. But throughout this text, you also have these echoes back to Genesis 3, right? See, good, take, hide. And one of the key questions of Genesis 3 is all about wisdom, right? You have the tree of Tove and Ra, And the question is whether Adam and Eve will learn wisdom, the difference between tov and ra, good and bad, from God on long walks in the garden, or whether they will take the shortcut to the knowledge of wisdom, the difference between tov and ra on their own, whether they'll pick from the tree they're told not to pick from. Right? And the context of 1 Samuel up to this point is the same context as Judges, What is the most repeated phrase in Judges? The people were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were taking the shortcut to wisdom, picking from the tree of Tov and Ra, replaying Genesis 3. Last week, Aaron talked about how the people wanted a king so they could be like the other nations rather than trusting in God as their king. And Saul acts like the forbidden fruit, right? He's seen as good, tall and handsome. He's taken and he's given to the people as king. But if you read further on in the Bible, Proverbs 1 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you go back to Genesis 3, what we see is that because Adam and Eve do not fear God, stand in awe of God, in reverence of God, What's fascinating is they hear his voice and then they're afraid of God and they hide, right? Because they do not fear God, stand in awe of God, they eat the fruit, right? And as a result, they're afraid of God and the consequences of their actions, they hide like Saul in the baggage, more afraid of the task than God, This story in 1 Samuel 9 through 11 with sort of Genesis 3 in mind, I think is this really rich springboard for us for personal reflection. Are we more concerned about what others think or God? Israel was more concerned about looking like their neighbors than they were willing to trust in God. Saul hides in the baggage in part because he's more afraid of being, doing it wrong than he is sort of living in this awe-filled, reverent, trusting posture with God. As a church, is the fear of the Lord bringing us together as stewards of God's calling personally and communally? Or are we just as individuals and a collective just doing what is right in our own eyes? as we consider our life with Jesus, I think one of the questions that we should ask on a regular basis is what orients our heart? 
practically, I wonder if it might be worth doing kind of like a fear inventory this week. Just each day, pay attention to how fear functions in your life. Are there moments in the day when you find you're making decisions, your mind is focused, your emotions are engaged with awe and reverence before God? Or when you look at your day, do you find that fear is the primary orientation of your heart as far as what people think? Are you anxious about the worries of the world and what might go wrong? Are you ruminating on your mind about all the future disasters that could come? And is that then directing your actions? Or is it the awe of God? I want to invite the worship team up. I think this is something we can look at through the week as doing sort of a, a weekly, you know, fear inventory of what, what, what drives our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our minds. We're going to sing a song now called Build My Life, and one of the things I love about this song is it actually helps us to direct our mind and heart and soul to who is worthy, right? That's how the song begins, right? Who is worthy of our praise? And then it shifts into this prayer to God that we would build our life on the foundation, right, of our awe before Him. I want to invite us to stand and just want to say a prayer as we enter into worship. God, would you give us eyes to see your fingerprints in our life? Those moments when maybe we'd be throughout our life, when maybe we've just said, ah, that was just chance or luck. God, may we see where your hand is and where it hasn't been. God, give us eyes to see. God, help us to connect the dots. And God, as we lean into worship, I do ask, God, that you would awaken in us an awe of your presence. Awaken in us a reverence before your name. God, we want to know that you are worthy. God, we want to build our life on the foundation of your presence. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God, may we be a people who are not afraid of the world, but we stand in awe of you. God, may we be a people who are not anxious about what's coming next, but a people who continually in reverence look towards you. God, may we be a people who live in the fear of the Lord, that we might not be a people that are afraid of the Lord. Jesus, come. Worthy 